0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Shibe Sports Presents. My name's Johnny Goodtimes. I'm Reef. And uh, We are thrilled to be joined today by the author of several books about baseball, uh, one of them Fair Dealing and Clean Playing, uh, which was about the Hilldale Negro League team, uh, a book called Negro League Baseball, The Rise and Ruin of a Black Institution, and Campy, The Two Lives of Roy Campanella. Uh, Dr. Neil Lankto, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure
0: to be here. Yeah, All absolutely. Right. Uh, excited to have you here. And I wanted to see, uh, wanted to kind of kick off uh, from the get-go with the Hilldale Club, because they were located, I believe, right outside of Philadelphia, and um, were a, a fairly successful baseball team of the early 20th century. wanted to know if you could tell us a little bit more about them and a little bit more about how you got involved with learning about uh, the Hilldale Baseball Club.
1: Well, Hildale's a very interesting story. They they don't get much ink, but they truly deserve a lot of ink. Uh, They started out as basically an African-American boys team in Darby. And I'm sure your listeners a lot maybe in the Philadelphia area know Darby, know outside the city in Delaware County. And a gentleman named Ed Bolden, who was a postal worker, basically built them up from being a little bunch of teenage boys uh team and transformed them within six seven years into a professional team that eventually became part of the first successful eastern negro league uh eastern color league and the hilldale club was very successful in the 1920s they were in two uh, negro league world series they won one of them um they drew a lot of fans they had several superstar players and hall of famers but unfortunately they've been kind of forgotten today and i think it doesn't help them that there's no Philadelphia Hilldale's in front of them. So I think a lot of people yeah. don't even know, what like, Hilldale. what does that mean? But they right. truly were one of the greats. And Ed Bowles and the guy who ran the team, I always say he should be as well-known as Connie Mack because he was involved in the Negro Leagues for, like, 40 years, which is close to Mack uh, managing the Phil- the age for 50 years. So they're kind of a forgotten team, but really should be well-known and remembered for Philadelphia sports fans, in fact, all sports fans.
2: Yeah. You said that they had uh, uh, some superstars and Hall of Famers. Um, did, did, are any of those names at the top of your head right now?
1: Sure. They had Judy Johnson, who was uh, – Johnson was uh, out of the Wilmington area. I think he was born in Maryland but grew up in, in Wilmington. Uh, mm-hmm. Johnson was a great third baseman. He's in the Hall of Fame. They had Oscar Charleston on their team a couple of years. He's considered probably the greatest player of the 20s. Uh, would have been a, a tremendous superstar in the major leagues. He was a great outfielder who could – who could hit with power, he could feel, he could do just about everything. They had mm. John Henry Lloyd, who was a shortstop. He's in the Hall of Fame, too. Um, just a bunch of really fantastic mm. players in that era um, sure. that, as I said, are not as well-known as they should be. As I said, when, when people talk about the Negro leagues, they tend to talk about you know the Monarchs, Kansas City Monarchs, or, or yeah. say the Homestead Grays or the Crawfords. But Hildale deserves to be right up there. Um, they, they, they folded in the early thirties because of the depression. So they were around for about 20 years, but while they were operating, they were a very, very successful team and, um, absolutely were probably the top team in the East during those decades.
0: Well, you say they, they folded in the early thirties. That is, uh, the same time that the Philadelphia stars began. Was there some crossover there? Yes. Um,
1: Bolden, the gentleman I mentioned earlier, he was involved with Hilldale until about 1930. Uh, and then another gentleman took over the team in the last couple of years, John Drew, who was a wealthy African-American entrepreneur in Delaware County. And in 32, when the, the Depression was so devastating, Hilldale went belly up. And then in 33, Bolden came back uh, with a new team of Philadelphia Stars. And this time he partnered with Eddie Gottlieb is a name who, again, may mean something to your listeners. Gottlieb was involved in Negro League Baseball, but was also involved in basketball for many years. Uh, So Gottlieb was kind of the the money man behind the Philadelphia Stars. And Bolden was the guy, kind of like the GM, I guess we call him today. So Bolden was involved with both of these two Philadelphia teams for over a 40 year period. Um, the stars again seem to get more ink these days, but as far as success on the playing field, there's no question that Hilldale was a more successful franchise than, than uh, the stars were.
2: Wow, that's incredible. How did recruiting and things like that work, work back then? Was it was it kind of like it is now? Like you know, you you see a guy out of college, out of the that had farm leagues? or Was it just kind of like whoever could play just show up?
1: Well, the Negro Leagues were, were very informal in that regard. They really never had minor leagues per se. Sure. But you have to remember in those days, they had there were lots and lots of little amateur teams and semi-pro teams, both white and African-American, that would be playing. And what the Negro League teams would do often would be scout those games. Yeah. And if they saw, say, a promising kid in one of those, those uh, semi-pro games, they might say, well, come join our team for a week. We'll see if you work out or not. And that would be the stepping stone. You'd go from there. You either made it or you didn't make it. There really wasn't a whole lot of training. There was no minor league system. But that was the, the recruiting, the way it was done. Um, so Hildale had quite a few Philadelphia-oriented players. And the Stars did, too. Guys they picked off the fan lot, um, who ended up becoming pretty successful. Uh, Roy Campanella, who you, you guys said we probably get to later, the book I wrote, most recent baseball book I wrote, Campanella – started on the Philadelphia lots and he was discovered by a Negro League team and then they signed him and he was only 15 at the time. So that was the way you got yourself discovered. Now, what was the odds of you being discovered were probably not that high unless you were <laughs> right. some super duper star at the time, but there wasn't much recruiting beyond that. There were some who came out of the African-American colleges occasionally. That was another another route uh, mm. into the Negro League, but I think the vast majority of players in the Negro were simply guys who played lots for semi-pro ball and who were discovered given a chance and then they made it
2: gotcha
0: so you wrote the book uh, Negro League Baseball: The Rise and Ruin of a Black Institution, and that sort of kicks off right at the time we're talking about, which is the early 30s. And a lot of the book, it's not as much about players as it is about business and uh, the sports impact on the black community. Uh, I wanted to know if if you had any, uh, you remembered anything specifically about black baseball and its impact on the black community in Philadelphia.
1: Well, it's it's an interesting story. I mean, that that book was was about the financial end of of and the organization of the Negro League. And I always say it was, I mean, they were so underfinanced. they didn't have the money to do what they wanted to do. And it's amazing that they they stayed functioning in the '30s during the Depression, and then during the '40s, and then when when integration came uh, with Jackie Robinson. Today is Jackie Robinson Day. Um, mm-hmm. That was the beginning of the end for the Negro League, but as far as Philadelphia is concerned, Philadelphia was always a very good venue for the Negro Leagues. I mean, one of the reasons was they had a decent-sized African-American population, but that in itself was not always enough. There were other, other teams that had large black populations, too. But I think there was just always a, a very strong love of baseball here. Um, and the Eastern teams in general, like Philly, New York, Baltimore, uh, even you can throw Pittsburgh in there, too. They tended to do better financially than some of the teams in the Midwest because they didn't have to travel as much. I mean, you're you know you can go to you can go to Baltimore or DC, 100, 150 miles, whatever. Whereas in the Midwest, the franchises were much more spaced out, so it was a lot of travel involved. And of course, if you're traveling all the time, you're losing money. So the Eastern teams in the Negro leagues did very very well. Um, but as I said, Philly was always a very very strong venue. And when you get to the '40s during World War II, when the um, Athletics started to rent out Shibe Park fairly regularly to the Philadelphia Stars when they weren't using it. They started to outdraw the A's and the Phillies. I mean, they were drawing ten, fifteen thousand 15,000 fans in the early 40s. So they were doing very, very well. And that could give you a suggestion of how popular they were in the community uh, at that time. So, yes, they, they did very well financially. But as I said, the decline began in pretty much 47 and 48 when Robinson came along. And, of course, the Phillies themselves and the A's were very slow to integrate. But it really was the appeal of the Dodgers. When the Dodgers would come to town, a lot of the fans who used to go see the Negro League teams in Philly would come, they'd show up and go see the Dodgers instead. So that was what was starting to happen by the late 40s, early 50s.
2: Yeah. So, yeah, you you mentioned, as you mentioned, the Jackie Robinson Day. And, and I think uh, a lot of people, myself included, I'm a little bit younger, but I, the the belief was kind of like that he was integrated into the majors and then that was the end essentially of the Negro league. Are you, is it, is it fair to say that that's false or true? Was it, was his integration into the majors kind of like the, the, where the the buck kind of stopped there or did the leagues continue on for a little bit and then slowly, but surely kind of, kind of fell off.
1: I, I would call it a slow death. Hmm. Um, the Eastern teams were the first ones to start to go. um hmm philadelphia stars their last year was 52 so that was the last year there was an eager league franchise in philly with 1952 now you did have some teams like the monarchs held on for a long time and the reason the monarchs were able to hold on was because they were able to develop players and then sell them to major league teams or minor league teams so they they get they get their money there um, so, you, had, you know, in the 50s, you had, like, say, Ernie Banks being developed by the Monarchs and then sold to the, sold to the Cubs. And then you even had the Indianapolis Clowns, who sold uh, the late great Hank Aaron, uh, was sold by the Clowns in the early 50s. So the Negro Leagues kind of survived barely in the 1950s by selling players. And then you have to realize in the South, there was still substantial segregation. So the Negro Leagues could kind of hang on in the South for a certain degree, but the South was never great financially for the Mm -hmm. Negro Leagues because of segregation, because uh, Negro League teams typically would play say three, maybe four league games a week if they were lucky, and then the rest of the week they play white semi-pro teams. Mm -hmm. But in the South, you couldn't play those games because of segregation. So Mm -hmm. if you're in the South and you're a Negro League team, the only way you can make money is by playing other African-American teams. You can't make your money on these other side games. So Mm -hmm. that's why playing in the South was never a particularly attractive option. But what we call the Negro Leagues, I'd say they pretty much were dead by about 1960, you know, 61. I think that was pretty much it for the, for the, uh, for the monarchs and people like that. They were really no longer relevant. What was happening was the best black players, say, in the high schools or even in Sandlots wherever, were being signed by Major League Baseball or Minor League Baseball in the 50s. Or, or they were going to, say, Mexico or uh, even playing in Canada. I mean, the Negro Leagues were just no longer a very attractive option once integration occurred.
0: And, and that had to be a, a tough situation for uh the negro league owners because on the one hand they I, I suspect they wanted to see that progress and on the other hand when jackie went, i have to think that there was some you know i have to think that they saw the writing on the wall
1: they did i think there was mixed emotions it was, it was a very touchy thing because some some of the owners were white and some were african-american I'm, and of course, when Robinson was signed in 45 by uh, the Dodgers, uh, the Monarchs you know, were owned by a pair of, of white men, and they felt it was very unfair that Branch Rickey of the Dodgers did not compensate them for Jackie Robinson's contract. Mm-hmm. Now, they thought of making a legal stink, but then they said, no, well, we can't. We you know it's, it's just a very touchy situation because everyone wants Robinson to, to do this great thing, but mm-hmm. it's really not fair. Now, of course, Branch Rickey of the Dodgers was like, well, you guys don't organize your league very well. Jackie doesn't have a contract in writing, so I'm going to take advantage of it, and you get nothing. And the <laughs> Monarchs got nothing uh, for, for Robinson. In fact, Rickey signed Robinson, Campanella, uh, and Don Newcomb all for nothing. Uh, he took <laughs> advantage of the Negro League not imposing very strong contracts they did after the after the integration was occurring but mm-hmm. they had been very lax in that regard and the, the theory that was always was always proposed was because they figured if we have really strong contracts that we can't get rid of people or not you know and, and have to continue paying them so mm-hmm. they figured we'll just do word of mouth kind of contract and that's what a lot of teams did but actually i think the first team to actually get money for selling a, team, a player to the majors was the Philadelphia Stars they sold Roy Partlow uh, to the um, Dodgers I think in 46 and they did they did pay them for for for, uh, for his contract but that was another issue too I mean when integration is occurring it's like are they gonna take all our players and we're gonna, are we gonna get anything for them so they were, wanted to set some kind of precedent and the signing of Robinson with no money was, was just a very upsetting thing for some of the owners
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, After your research and experience, why do you think so many great teams like the Hilldells and, 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 and different organizations just kind of like, you know, once they were gone, they disappeared into the dust?
1: Well, I think for the African-American community, they, there was almost no need for them anymore. At least it was believed that way. I mean, especially when, mm-hmm. when integration comes in the late 40s, it's, it's in all parts of American life. And that's like, you know, to integrate mm-hmm. is a thing. So mm-hmm. it's like we don't want separate African-American hospitals anymore, which there were in mm-hmm. Philly. We had, you know, Mercy sure. things like that. and we really don't want separate uh, colleges anymore. We want integration. And a lot of even the, the African-American press was like saying, well, if the Negro Negroes have to die, so be it. I mean, this is so much better for us to be playing in the major leagues. And even Jackie Robinson made, there's a quote by him I used in one of my books for Robinson's at something like, well, playing in the Negro Leagues was a really a miserable way to make a buck, which which really wasn't mm. a fair thing to say, because if he hadn't played the Negro Leagues, he might never have been discovered. Right. But to go from you know, playing in the Negro leagues where you have, you know, harsh traveling conditions and you get probably a dollar a day meal money and then you go to the major leagues where you're staying in the finest hotels and it just it was like night and day. So mm. I think there was a lot of well this this institution has served its purpose we don't need it anymore. Uh, The major leagues will take care of our baseball needs from now on. And that really didn't turn out to be the case because I think in Philly, I think the interest among African-Americans in baseball began to taper off probably by the 60s, Mm -hmm. even though it used to be such an important part of, of the community. I mean, I think it was probably the favorite sport in the 40s and probably in the 30s and the 20s in the community. But I think with the disappearance of the Negro Leagues, I think the the the, the interest began to fade. Um, it started to shift to other sports, you know, and that's yeah. that's, that's a whole other whole, whole other issue.
0: Sure. Right, and the Phillies also, as you said earlier, they were one of the they were one of the slowest teams in the majors to integrate. So I think that probably uh, yeah. turned off the fans quite a bit too. Um, so, uh, Josh Gibson said that dozens of us would make the majors if given the opportunity to play under the same circumstances as the white players. Um, I'm curious in your reading and your research, like, you know, and I know you, you, get this question a lot, but in terms of quality of play, um, do you think that a lot of those guys had there, was it not, if it was not for Kennesaw Mountain Landis and the societal pressures, do you think a lot of those guys would have gone to the majors?
1: Yeah, um, I, 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 I'll I throw a rough figure out there. I mean, by the 40s, there were six Negro League teams in the East and six in the West. That's 12 teams. They had rosters of about 15 players, so 15 times. Let's say 200 players in the Negro League by the mid-40s. I would say at least a quarter of them, which would be 50 players, uh, were probably major league. could have stepped into the majors and, and played perfectly fine. Um, that may even be conservative. So the thing with the Negro league is that their rosters were very small and the level of competition from day to day was not consistent. So I think it's very hard to, to measure the caliber of play. Um, I think about Campanella. I mean, Campanella was a star in the Negro league brand Rickey, however, started him in the lower level minors. He didn't start him in the majors and even, even Robinson did a year at triple a. So, it was a very hard thing for a lot of the Negro League players to make the jump directly from the Negro League to the majors. However, I do believe many of them, as I said, I have no absolutely no question to me that, that many of them could have played the majors, a, a, a decent segment of them. So even if we say the twelve teams, probably you could say the, the five best on each team were probably major league caliber, and that, again that may be conservative.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we move on to, uh, you know, we segue here into your third book, which is Campy, The Two Lives of Roy Campanella. And I, I, you know, I find it unfortunate. I don't think a lot of people realize that Campanella is actually from Philadelphia. Yeah, Uh, I, I didn't know
2: that until this interview. (laughs) <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. So, you know, and he was uh, certainly a trailblazer in the majors. Um, but, I, you know, I, I'm curious as to what you picked up about his, uh, you know, when he was young, when he was growing up in nice town, and uh, what you can tell us about his time in Philly and and whether he had any sort of relationship with the city once he moved uh, to Brooklyn.
1: I think he did. I mean, he his family stayed in Philly for a long time. And I think his parents never moved away. So he always came back to Philly on a regular basis. Um, you know, he spent the first 15 years of his life here and at age 15, he went into the Negro league and then spent the next 20 odd years playing baseball. So he, he, was constantly on the road after that. Um, the interesting Campanella story is that in, in 1942, when there was immense pressure put on the major leagues to integrate during world war two, um, Campanella went to the Phillies and said, can I have a tryout? You know, because the talk right now is the integration is going to happen. And the, the Phillies had their chance to grab them. And the Phillies mm. being the Phillies in those days run by Bob Carpenter and, 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 the, and the rest of the dopes who were, who were running the team in those days said, oh, well, you'd have to start on the lowest rung. And uh, I don't think you would be able to, you know, they they, they, they pushed they blew him off. Uh, which is probably one of the biggest mistakes ever. And Campanella could have, he could have been the person who integrated the majors five years before Jackie Robinson. Phillies would have had a great catcher, would have changed their whole institutional history if they had signed an African-American player in those days, but they didn't want to do it. Um, And they didn't have the the nerve to do it. I think, you know, Philadelphia was a tough city for African-American players. And I think people know what happened with Robinson here in 47. So, Maybe it would have been very difficult for him to be the first. Now we all know your listeners probably know too. You know the first for the for the Phillies turned out to be an average mediocre player, John Kennedy, a guy who was you know good enough to play Major League Baseball was no superstar. Really wasn't until Richie Allen until they had a superstar here in Philly. But Campanella if he had come in '42, that really would have made a, a big difference in the Phillies' history. And the and yeah. Connie yeah. Mack didn't yeah. want him yeah. either. I Mac mean, Mac yeah. Mack was another.
0: Yeah, I mean, you talk generational. I mean, 1942 and, and Richie Allen was 1964. So you're talking over 20 years uh, between when they could have, you know, changed the history of the team and when they actually mm-hmm. did.
1: I think the uh, Phillies probably regret it to this day because I, I think their fan base even would probably have more African American fans if they had if they had that history. If they had started, but they started so late. And the thing by starting late, they also missed out on a lot of really good talent. Um, Mm. I'm from New England. I'm a Red Sox fan and the Red Sox did the same thing. They both of them were very, very slow. By the time they got in on it, it was like the early sixties and they were competing against, you know, 15 other teams who had already grabbed a lot of some of the best talent. I mean, the Dodgers, you know, branch Ricky, whatever you're going to say about him, he could be a penny pincher, but he went in there and grabbed all these players. He was a visionary. He knew this talent was there and it was, it was going to change the game. And I should go in there and go in there as fast as I can and get it. And he did. But the other teams were sitting on the sidelines. They were too wedded to their, their prejudices and their fears. And, and Carpenter, as I said, that was a big mistake for Carpenter. think it cost the Phillies, I think, their success. And it's probably cost the A's might still be in Philadelphia right now if they had integrated right. sooner.
2: Was it, was it, do, do you know if it was from your research, was it Carpenter's personal beliefs or he just didn't want to rock the boat in Philadelphia?
1: Uh, I hate to call anyone a racist. But I, I would say Carpenter was let's let's put it nicer, he was a product of his time. Sure.
2: Uh, okay. I don't
1: think he That's was fair particularly enough. Mm-hmm. En- I don't think he was particularly enlightened
2: uh, <laughs> in that regard
1: <laughs> and he was he was not someone who was going to go against uh, the other. And he did kind of have a southern background and he just yeah. I, I don't think I don't think he was gonna do it. I mean he was approached, he was pressured and, and really by the by the fifties the NAACP was putting a lot of pressure on on him to do something and he kind of dodged it as long as he could. Mm. And then they finally started signing some for their minor league teams. And, and Mac by the late forties, early fifties was just, he was old and he was out of touch. And I don't think he wanted them either. As long as Mac was running the team and then his son took over the team and kind of ran into the ground, but they were also somewhat incompetent, but both Philadelphia teams, like I said, it's, it's, it's a black mark on the city. Um, Mm. And even the Eagles were slow. I mean, it's interesting that the, all the Philly franchises were pretty slow and integrated, you know, in the in the NBA and the NFL too. Whereas some other cities like you know, New York and Cleveland were a lot quicker to do mm-hmm. it. Now, I don't know if that says mm-hmm. something about Philly as a town, as a racial climate oh, here Oh,
2: oh, or it, oh it does, fever. my friend. It does. Okay. <laughs> okay well, well, <laughs> <laughs>
1: I didn't want to say that, but I mean, but, but, but uh, yeah. I, I think it, it, it may not be a coincidence, that we say? No, no.
0: Right, right. So you, so you, uh, you know, you also had mentioned before that Campanella almost was the first with the Pirates, and that was another option. Um, I'm, I'm curious when, when you're saying, you know, when you look at, you know, sort of the the alternative history that didn't happen. Um, do you think Campanella would have been as well suited to be the groundbreaker as Jackie Robinson? was?
1: He probably would have been more well suited because I always tell people that uh, Robinson was a real hothead. You know, he, he, he was a fiery guy. I mean, unlike what people think. Uh, he was, and because he was a fiery guy, it was very hard for him to work under the rules that Ricky put him under in 1947, which is like you can't fight back and you, you can't say anything. Um, so he was a he was someone who was probably probably why he died so young. I think it was killing him, you know, that he couldn't fight back. and They didn't really let him off his leash until about 19, I think maybe 48, 49. Then Ricky said, go ahead. You can do what you want. You can scream at umpires. You can scream at other players. Um, Campanella was a lot more mellow. He was a, a, a mellow guy. I mean, he was a a jolly guy, got along with everyone, even with the Dodgers themselves. Campanella was a more popular player on the Dodgers because he was just a he was just a more down to earth, friendly sort of guy. And Jackie was a more private person that um, didn't have the personality that, that Campanella had. Um, but of course, he couldn't have done any better than Robinson did. Robinson to be a great success. But it is interesting to speculate what might have happened if. If Robinson had failed in 1947 or failed even in the minor leagues in 46 with Montreal, would Ricky have jumped Campanella in 47? As as it turned out, Jackie went up to Brooklyn in 47. Campy went up to Montreal in 47 and then 48 Campy went to Brooklyn. So he was one year behind Jackie. So I don't know what would have happened. I think Campanella probably would have been successful, but that was a, that was always a touchy thing between Campanella and Robinson. They were two guys who were very competitive. They started out as friends and they broke apart as friends in the fifties. And Robinson always said, Campy's jealous of me because I was the first and Campy feels that he should have been the first. So there was, there was tension over that wow. very issue. And I think for Campanella, it was, I played the Negro league for years. You played one year in the Negro league. It should have been me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there was, was some, was some, uh, uh, definitely some tension over that that was never quite resolved between Robinson and, and Campanella. And that was their relation was a big part of the book, you know, of yeah. these guys who who were once so close and then really totally fell apart in the 50s.
0: Right. And I, I know I, I know in, in the book as well, you talk about how part of that was because Robinson was so involved with civil rights movement and so forth. And that wasn't really Campy's personality. So could could you talk a little bit more about that in terms of of Jackie's involvement and seeing himself as not just, you know, him going to the majors, but being part of a movement, whereas it seemed like Campy just wanted to play baseball.
1: Yeah. Jackie believed he had been given a soapbox. And he's like, I'm not just an athlete. I believe I should, I should speak out. Um, Campy felt I'm doing my part for the movement by just by example. In other words, by being a a great ball player and, 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 you know, making uh, my teammates proud and my people proud. I, I'm doing my thing. But can't, uh, Robinson got very frustrated with himself that Campy should speak out more and should be more of a crusader. And, and Robinson was also frustrated with Willie Mays for the same reason. I mean, Willie Mays is another guy who, he just wanted to play ball. He didn't want to get into the politics. He just wasn't cut out to be that kind of crusader. Uh, but Robinson felt that Mays and Campanella and some of the other African-American players at that time, they were too comfortable. They just wanted, you know, they just wanted to collect their check and they should be out there in the streets and protest. The thing is, Jackie had much more education than they did. Too. Jackie was, you know, had, had a college education, never graduated, but he had, I think he had two or three years. Campy had basically a, a barely a high school education. Um, I don't think Mays had a great education either. I mean, Mays came out of the South where the, where the educational system was, was terrible for African-Americans. So I think Robinson had trouble understanding that not everyone could be like him. And as I said, it was a great frustration to him that these players would not speak out the same way he, he wanted them to. He and Campy eventually mended fences late in life shortly before Jackie's death. Um, I'm not sure with Mays, they, they ever quite, quite, uh, patched things up, but, um, that, that was a very touchy issue in the 50s about, you know, among African-American athletes. you know What do you do? What do you say uh, in the civil rights movement? I mean, um, it was true in, in football. It was true in basketball. It was, it was true in tennis. Uh, as far as should I jeopardize my position? I mean, I've got this great position as a, as a high-paid athlete. Should I say things that might make me unpopular? I don't know if I should or I shouldn't. Some did, some did not. Jackie felt they all should.
2: I mean, it's literally, it's it's funny, it just sounds like something that's a conversation that's still happening today amongst athletes, you know?
1: Yeah, definitely. Kind of when I was saying, I was thinking the same thing, it's, things really do repeat themselves, and so we are kind of seeing mm-hmm. it today, mm-hmm. um, you know, which athletes should say something, some do, some don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, today, they've got their forums to say something, whereas in the 50s, they didn't. They were dependent on kind of sports writers, um, yeah. you know, reporting what they said and that was another issue too you know, campy was a real schmoozer with the sports writers. he got along with the writers he would he would you know he, he could work them um he worked on crafting his image his brand i guess we would call it today mm-hmm. whereas mm-hmm. jackie didn't want to do that jackie would just you know he, he he would he would he would antagonize some of the writers and the writers weren't always you know they of course weren't that kind to him the way they covered him so he had a very stormy time with the Dodgers. when i did the research on the book on campanella i was surprised to see Jackie was always in the middle of something. He was a very, uh, he was he was a controversial player more than I think people realize. Cause I think everyone just sees him as the guy who integrated, but he was a very complex figure, a very complicated man. When I interviewed Monty Irvin, who was a Hall of Famer, African American Negro Negro League mm-hmm. star, about Jackie, and he said that about Jackie could be very difficult. I mean, as of people respected him, but he was he had expectations for the other players and. He wasn't always the most tolerant of their weaknesses as far as how mm-hmm. they they acted. Um but of course it's taking the away from Jackie but I just I think I think it's we should think of him in a more complex manner than we often he's kind of become a one dimensional figure. Um and I mm-hmm. think we should think more about his his uh his life and what he said and what he did, you know, on on mm-hmm. this day on Jack Drop's day. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think I think sometimes, you know, uh, folks like him get Disney-fied a little bit and he becomes this sort of uh, you know, this this just wonderful man that did this wonderful thing one day and in fact, he wasn't just a I mean, he's one of the all-time great baseball players. He was obviously the guy integrated, but he was also an extremely complicated civil rights leader, and he was really involved with all those kinds of things, and sometimes I feel like that stuff kind of gets pushed out of the way so that, that baseball can just celebrate the day he integrated it. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: yeah, he he was a very intelligent guy, uh, far more intelligent than the average athlete in those days. That's funny. <laughs> I, I just saw him the other day on... One of the stations shows the old Dick Cavett shows. I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember Dick Cavett. I remember Dick Cavett. Okay, so Dick Cavett had the interview show, and I was just watching Jackie. He was from late in his life, and he was on there talking about all kinds of subjects. Some of them didn't have anything to do with baseball. I was just thinking how few athletes could could do that then or now. I mean, he was a very well-read, very intelligent figure who – in some ways, and that was the difference between he and Campy. I mean, Jackie was like, okay, I played baseball. That's one part of my life. Once I'm done that, there's so many other things I want to do. You know, I, I, there's there's just that's that's like a means to an end. Uh, whereas, you know, a lot of athletes just want they want to play their sport and that's it, make some money and that's it. Whereas he had he had ambitions beyond that, and I think that's a big part of his story as well. Which I think Disneyfied is a good going to press. I think I think MLB has kind of Disney-fied him. They kind of wrap themselves in this every year. and they kind of they kind of, <laughs> of sidestep some of the other stuff about him, the political side of him, which I think is, is important.
0: Yeah. In, in that same in that same regard, even though Campy wasn't uh, you know formally educated, uh, he was he was playing a sport which is you know kind of considered the or sorry playing the position that a lot of people think the smartest guy on the field plays, which is catcher, and having to both have a high IQ and EQ, uh, you know, to both call a game and to, you know, kind of have a relationship with five different guys a week and, and make them, you know, feel okay when you go out to the mound and that, you know, so what was, was he a pioneer in that regard at all? Were catchers, was that considered a position that, you know, that that black guys weren't supposed to play that position at that time?
1: Yeah. It's kind of like the black quarterback, uh beliefs Mm -hmm. at that time um can't be i know when he when he first came to the dodgers there was at least one possibly two pitchers who would not take his signals because they were southerners
2: um, jesus how
1: how, how can we be how can we be told what to throw by 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 an african-american man now ricky to his credit basically got rid of all those people anyone any of those those southerners, and I shouldn't say also because I think there were a few northerners too who were bigots. Sure. Um, but Ricky Ricky pretty much dumped dumped them. So just, you know they're more trouble than they're worth. We don't need them on a team. We'll get rid mm-hmm. of them. Um, but yeah, so Campy had to do. He had to win them over and show that he knew what he was doing and that he was the smartest guy in the field. And he quickly did that again. He always said, too, about his personality, like, Jackie thinks I'm too nice, but Jackie doesn't know I've got to handle a pitching staff, and I've got to get along with them, and I've got to have a certain personality. I can't be, you know, this intense guy like you are, Jackie. I have to be, you know, a more personable figure to get them to trust me and trust my pitch calling and things like that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. he was definitely a, um, a pioneer there. And there really weren't many African-American catchers. I don't think there's ever even been a whole mm-hmm. lot. It's probably less than 35, 50. I even, if I sat down and tried to write them down the last 50, 60 years, there have not been that many. The last one I can even think of, maybe you guys might even know, I'm thinking Charles Johnson, and that All was right, like in, in the, the 90s. 90s. Yeah, so I, I can't – I don't even know if there's been that many since. Um, but it's a, so it's an interesting thing. He did break that. He did break that stereotype. It was, that was, a, that was a, a very important thing he did as a, um, as a catcher. In the, 19, mm-hmm. in the 1940s and 50s during his career.
2: Yeah, Can I ask, uh, you know, what drew you to this subject? Is this clearly a labor of love for you to write these books and things? Was it something that you grow up wanting to know more about the Negro Leagues, or is just something you were entranced with as a, as a child, your father into it? Like, what drew you to want to write these, these books?
1: Well, I've always been like a massive sports fan um, mm-hmm. as a kid. And I was always interested in history, but I can't say I knew that much about the Negro Leagues per se, growing up, growing mm-hmm. up. I knew about probably the ones everyone, I knew Josh Gibson, I knew Satchel sure. Paige. Mm-hmm. Um, but what got me in, involved, my first exposure to it, was there was a guy, John Hallway, um, who was doing research on the Negro Leagues. He's really one of the first ones to do a lot of interviews on Negro League players many years after the fact. So in the 60s and 70s, I think he started to track down these, these forgotten players and do interviews with them. And then he started to compile statistics. He was one of the first to really start trying to put piece together the statistics in the Negro League. So anyway, at one point he advertised that he was looking for someone in the Philadelphia area to go through the African American newspapers and just copy the box scores down and send them to him where he would compile that. So I applied for the job. I was in college at the time, or I think I was just getting out of college. And he hired me, so I, I had to go to the Free Library of Philadelphia and take the microfilm off the shelf and look at the Philadelphia Tribune, you know, with the Tribune still right, run, going, right, going strong right. in, the, in the 21st century, <laughs> and basically go into the Philadelphia Tribune and just copy the box scores for him. And that was my first exposure. I was like, wow, this is amazing. There was this whole other world, number one at the time that we didn't know about the white world didn't even know about and then there was a whole other sports world going on and there was this whole other baseball league going on and that's what got me first interested in the subject it was just so fascinating that mm-hmm. this this existed um and it's totally a totally separate universe mm-hmm. that much of the white population knew nothing about and it was just that's what got me going on it and yeah what happened was I was in graduate school and one of my professors said, you have to write a paper or research paper on, on I think it was something Philadelphia based. And I think I chose, I chose Hilldale. I think that was what got me doing Hilldale. Um, I did a little paper on Hilldale. And then the other thing I'll mention, I didn't mention before is that Hilldale is also unique in that their financial records have been preserved. They're at the Afro, Afro Afro-American museum, um, society Hill. Uh, So I went in there and, look at their financial records there's, there's all kinds of great stuff for the stars and a lot of negro league teams don't did not preserve their records uh but hilldale did so there's i was one of the first to really go in there and look at those documents and ledger books and stuff like that so that was my beginning and my, my beginning exposure to the negro leagues and from there that resulted in the two books
2: awesome yeah and to be fair man a lot of the black world doesn't know a lot about it as well you know what i mean and i'm speaking from experience like it's 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 almost like, uh, like you said, a whole different universe that you didn't even know existed. It's crazy, you know.
0: Right, right. Yeah, I, I I'm curious what your thoughts are with the major leagues incorporating the Negro League stats, um, making them more or less MLB official. Um, wanted to see what your thoughts were on that. I mean. And also, just kind of how the the Negro Leagues have been brought back to life, in a sense. I mean, you know, we talked to mm-hmm. Bob Kendrick last year from the Negro League Museum. We talked to Sean Gibson, who was uh, Josh Gibson's great grandson, and and there seems to be have been a, a revival of sorts that uh, have allowed these uh, stories to um, to not be forgotten.
1: I think it's great. The revival is great. I, I'm all for it. I think. I think the Negro Leagues have been too long forgotten. I mean, when I first started doing this like 25 years ago or whatever it was, uh, it was very little work being done at all. And, and, and in the last 10, 15 years, there's a lot more research done on the Negro Leagues. So I'm, I, I think that's great. I, I don't know about the statistics, to be honest with you. And, and my, my issue with them is, as, as, and as I mentioned earlier in the interview, I, I fully believe that at least, you know, 50, 60 players were major league caliber. There's no question about the, the caliber of Of the players. The statistics, however, are a different story. I'll I'll tell you what my feeling is. I think it's very hard to compare Negro League stats to MLB stats because they did not play as many games. So the typical Negro League season was like 50, 60 games maybe. And then they would not play an equal number of games against every team. So the Philadelphia Stars might play 16 games against the Grays eight games against uh, the Baltimore uh, Elite Giants, uh, three games against the New York Black Yankees, and then they might play 42 games at home and 26 games away. So what I'm saying is how can you compare statistics from a league that's set up that way or not set up to Major League Baseball where everyone plays the same amount of games, everyone plays the same amount of home games, Mm -hmm. Um, everyone plays seven days a week, Whereas in the Negro Leagues, you might play, as I said, just Saturday and Sunday. You can use your best pitchers or not your best pitchers. So I, What I'm saying is I think it's an apples and oranges comparison with the stats. So I'm not sure how valuable it is to incorporate those stats. As I said, I'm all for saying the Negro Leagues were as good as Major League Baseball. I have no problem with that. But I'm not sure if the stats themselves are that meaningful. And the other problem, too, is some of those stats will never be found. Um, mm. When I was working for John Holway, getting some of those stats, it would be very frustrating. You might find a game and, and the box score wouldn't have the number of at bats. They'd have something. They just have the hits. So you have to like guess how many bats did they do this time. Um, right. So I don't know if we're ever going to get all the stats. Um, I think it's, it's helpful to see their stats. But whether you can do a direct comparison between Negro League stats and MLB stats, I'm not I'm not sure it's possible.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Neil. We've uh, we've really uh, enjoyed having you on the show. We've we've learned a ton. This has been great. Um, hey,
2: man. Good interview. Thank you so much.
0: And uh, Thanks, God. yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, definitely want to shout out uh, the books: Negro League Baseball: The Rise and Ruin of a Black Institution, and Campy: The Two Lives of Roy Campanella. Uh, I believe you can find both those books online. Is that right? Yes, and they make great Father's Day gifts. <laughs>
2: yeah. There you go.
0: in Mother's Day's gift We don't want to be Yeah, sure, to sure, sure, <laughs> sure.
2: Yeah, good, good, good call. Yeah,
0: good save, good save. <laughs> um, all right, uh, Dr. Langto, we uh, thank you so much. And um, yeah, we wish you uh, continued, uh, continued success. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right, see ya. <laughs>